Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. We're at the end of Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28 this evening. Last week, we saw in verses 15 through 22, uh, the vital necessity of the shed blood of Christ. In fact, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why? Because we needed the curse of a broken covenant to be born, that we might be released and freed. And Jesus did that. And he did it to restore our relationship to God. And at verse 15, we saw he's the mediator of a new covenant. His sacrifice redeems all who look to him. It redeems all believers now who look back upon his finished work and embrace him. Just as it redeems those who lived before his time, it covered their transgressions as they looked to his coming for them. That raises questions for the original here, certainly the Jews who had come to faith in the Messiah as he's writing to them, who are tempted to turn away from Jesus and go back to all the symbols, the the human earthly priests in the the very man-made tabernacle, tent, temple, with the continual offering of animal sacrifices. They're tempted because of their neighbors, their friends, their family, their history, 2,000 years of Judaism, more. Uh, They're tempted to turn away. And the author needs to answer questions for them. Questions like, where is Jesus now? Why has he left us? I mean, in Judaism, we had a high priest we could see with our eyes. We could talk to face to face. But Christ, our high priest, is gone. He appeared. He has disappeared. What do we do now? How How then do we live? And he'll be getting at some of that here from Hebrews chapter 9, and he'll be repeating some of what he said previously, and we'll talk about that as well. Hebrews chapter 9, let me invite you to pay attention then to God's Word, verses 23 through 28. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. This is God's 
word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Lord and our God, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Grant that this word would teach us tonight and bless us, that we would stand forever with you in glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This is a passage that drives to this, salvation from judgment. Years ago in a frontier town, as the story is told, a horse bolted and ran away with a wagon which contained a very young child in it. A young man risked his life to catch the horse, stop it, rescue the child. Sadly, the rescued child grew up to become a lawless man, and one day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for a serious crime. The prisoner recognized the judge as the same man who years before had saved his life, and he pled for mercy on the basis of that experience. But the words from the bench silenced all his pleas. Young man, then I was your savior. Today, I am your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged. And so it is in the gospel. One day Jesus Christ will say to sinners who reject the saving he offers them. During that long day of grace, I was the Savior and I would have forgiven you. But today I am your judge. And to some he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. These are serious issues of Life and death forever. And the author brings death and judgment to mind in the passage, but his focus is on life and salvation through Jesus. He doesn't want us to miss that, and so he explains at length. Because Jesus is the great high priest, the better high priest you had than you had in the Old Testament, who offers the better sacrifice in the better tabernacle. He gives us a better future. Now, before we move to the outline and talk about these things, let me just say that some of what he's saying here is old ground if you've been paying close attention to the writer of Hebrews. We've heard it before here. And uh, it may feel like he's on a topic he just can't quit. I mean, he started the high priesthood of Jesus back in chapter 4. He's not going to finish it until the middle of chapter 10 when he drives it home with a very pointed warning and application. Maybe one could read all of this in one sitting, and that could be profitable. I've heard this passage, the whole of it, preached in one sermon. Not a particularly long sermon, but catching the high points. Then again, one of you noted to me last week that I could have sat on verse 15 last week for the whole sermon. Because it, as a text, was so rich. Behold the dilemma of a preacher, right? How quickly do we move through the material certainly the first hearers well the author is inviting them to a major paradigm shift in their thinking he's asking for their hearts to be changed their pattern of life to be changed he wants them to stand with christ as the messiah and endure persecution if need be 
for the Messiah. His first hearers would have had lots of questions about that whole transition. He needed to give them satisfactory answers. That's part of the reason he's so thorough, because the issues are so eternally monumentous. And he's being patient in handling the different kinds of questions they would have, because he knows that God is patient. He wants us to grow and understand. But he did feel it important to repeat himself And I want to say that is the mark of a good teacher. Not once and done, not I said it, they heard it. We don't need to talk about that again. No, 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 no. Uh, Repetition, reiteration, like any good parent instructing their child, like any good teacher with their pupil, like Jesus with his disciples. Why do we have four gospel accounts of the life of Christ? We need to be in it again and again, here again, even the same stories told by a different author from various perspectives. And so uh, we've, we're repeating some ground again in this passage, and it is the whole of it, chapters 4 through 10, is a long section. And I just want to say to us, don't be weary of what is in store for us. He's, he's repeating, but he's pushing his views forward, and he wants us to think deeply. They needed to see Jesus. They needed to know it was worth it. To follow him. We need that too. So how is Jesus better? And what does that mean for us from this passage? Let me highlight three things. In verses 23 and 24, we see that Jesus purified a better tent with a better sacrifice. In verses 25 and 26, we see that Jesus is a better high priest with a better sacrifice. And in verses 20. 7 and 28, we therefore have a better future because of this Savior. Those three things this evening, in the first place, verses 23 and 24, Jesus purified a better tent with a better sacrifice. Thus, it was necessary, verse 23, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. He's speaking about the man-made tent where God met with his people. And he could be purified. With all those blood rituals. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In the Old Testament, you may recall, and it's spoken of at great length in Leviticus. In Leviticus chapters 12 through 15. Right before you get chapter 16, the Day of Atonement ritual. We hear a lot about death and disease bringing a need for purification. There are instructions about what happens if you touch a dead body, what happens if you touch a leper, what happens if you touch a woman who's given childbirth, what happens if you touch uh, people who've had various bodily discharges in the book of Leviticus. And, And all of it points to this. You became ritually unclean, ritually, ceremonially unfit, for the presence of God in the community of God's people before him in worship. Because people are unholy. And how much more so does sin make us morally unclean and unfit? And so he speaks of purification here, not only of people, but of place. The Old Testament worship center, that earthly tabernacle, that place where God dwelt among his people. That place where where God met with Moses at the mercy seat, where God spoke to the Israelites out of the tent, it needed to be cleansed. Not on account of God's presence. Of course, he's holy. 
But it's the meeting place with Israel who required cleansing because they're unholy. So he says the heavenly meeting place, the true reality where God and mankind meet. Well, sinful people necessitate that where God and man meet together, there the blood of Christ which cleanses from sin must be applied. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see what he's saying? He has entered that holy place. He stands in the presence of God. And why is he there? He's there for you. He's there on our behalf, not for his own sake, that he took on flesh, suffered on the cross, and went into the holy of most holy place, but for our sake here. And by contrast with the Old Testament priest who went only on the Day of Atonement, only one day a year into the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. In contrast to that, Jesus has entered the most holy place and he is there on our behalf. That Old Testament priest went in alone. Alone. Yet not completely alone in a certain way. Alone in that all others were barred. No other priest could go into the most holy place and the people couldn't even go into the, the holy place outside the most holy place. I almost said less holy place, but the Bible doesn't speak of it that way. You couldn't get near, the Bible said. God is in your midst, but stay back. One man only. And yet, he went in there, though alone, in a sense he went in there not completely alone. He had on his breastplate the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And on uh, the things he wore on his shoulder, too. He, he carried the people. He represented the people there before God. Yet Jesus, our great high priest, though he does likewise, he does it better. Our names aren't written on a breastplate. They're written on his heart. They are inscribed on on his hands, so to speak. He goes in and he bears us with him. He's the true mediator who reconciles us to God. He's the true surety who guarantees us access to God. He's the pioneer who's gone before us as a forerunner into the most holy place, guaranteeing that we who follow him will be where he is, have access to where he has access. His appearance in the most holy place guarantees our acceptance there. And I'll simply apply it this way. You don't have to clean up to make yourself acceptable to God. You can't clean up enough to be presentable to God. But you can be cleansed in Jesus well enough, sufficiently, perfectly to be presentable to God. And so you don't have to fear that the Holy God will keep you at arm's length. Jesus brings you close. He's in the presence of God on our behalf and he brings us into the most holy place. You don't have to suspect judgment from that throne because that throne has become a throne of grace to his people. You don't have to think that God is against you 
Because the giving of Christ is proof that He is for you. You who come to God in His name. So the writer said all the way back when he started this in Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and help in time of need. Don't hold back. He's a better priest offering a better sacrifice in a better place and he's there on our behalf. And secondly, verses 25 to 26, he's that better priest with that better sacrifice and his focus is on that sacrifice. Verse 25, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. See what he's saying. On the day of the atonement, once a year, those old covenant high priests showed up with the blood of a ritual sacrifice. And every year it all had to be repeated. Because it never really dealt with sin. It never really brought redemption. It never really secured forgiveness. The blood of that animal promised that these things were available. It showed you how it was available, but it pointed beyond itself to the true Lamb of God, who alone can take away the sin of the world. And the writer here is saying, look, if the sacrifice of Jesus was not sufficient in substitute in death for every believer, then he would have what? He would have had to offer many sacrifices to deal with our sins. How many? A perpetual string of them, he says, from the foundation of the world. That may be hyperbole a bit, at least since the day Adam and Eve sinned. He would have had to have been sacrificed time and again for each sin or each sinner. If his one offering wasn't enough. But it was enough. It's all that you need. Verse 26, end of it. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This put away sin is legal language. It's a legal term. We encountered it one other place in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 18 where we read that the law concerning the Levitical priesthood, that law is, quote, set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Sin, uh, he's saying there that the old law about priesthood was set aside. It was abolished. It was done away with. Uh, A new priest has come, not according to law, but according to oath, the, the, the promised oath that God made. So likewise, he's saying here, sin is abolished. It is it is declared legally invalid. It has no legal claim on you. If you are in Christ, it can't get you. It can't condemn you and require you to be condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. You've been set free. And not only did he put sin away, but he bore our sin away. He bore our sins, as Peter says, in his body on the tree. And he took them away once and for all. And I want to say by way of application that one place where this passage has had a huge impact is in church history. During the days of the Protestant Reformation, there were many concerns over a variety of doctrines and practices that had crept into the church at the time of the medieval church that really had no basis in scripture. 
um, or worse, seem to fly in the face of things the scripture, like Hebrews, was saying. And one of the areas of contention between the medieval church and the Protestant reformers uh, was under their various understandings of the Mass, or what we call the Lord's Supper. Simply put, the Protestant church found it impossible to reconcile the concept of the Mass as a real physical ongoing sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. To reconcile that with the teaching of Hebrews. In Catholic doctrine, Christ is still being sacrificed. His body and blood are being broken and shed over and over again. In Protestant doctrine, the sacrifice of Christ, as Hebrews makes clear, is over and done. His priestly work of atonement is completely finished. Yes, at at each Lord's Supper, we proclaim his death until he comes, but we don't repeat his death. We remember it. We don't re-sacrifice Christ, we receive the benefits of his once for all death on our behalf. That difference is the reason why Catholic communion still has priests and Protestants have pastors. Uh, Why uh, Protestant churches have communion tables and Catholic churches have altars of sacrifice. And I'm not pointing these things out to pick a fight with anybody. I'd love to talk to you about these things, certainly. But to distinguish things that differ and to help us understand each other, if we are ever to see unity among Catholics and Protestants in terms of doctrine. We won't have unity at this table, a table of unity, if we don't pay close attention to the teaching of the books of Scripture like like Hebrews and allow the clear truths to inform and reform our beliefs and practices. And I point these things out to us to call us to delight in the finished work of Christ, to celebrate his all-sufficient sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sins, and to glory in Christ Jesus, the great high priest and the sole mediator between God and man. You need no one else offering any other sacrifice. And so because of all of this, verses 27 and 28, we have a better future because of this Savior. Just as it is appointed, verse 27, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The word appearing appears three times in the passage we've read this evening. I don't know if you noticed that. At verse 24, Christ has entered heaven now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 26, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now in verse 28, he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. He has appeared to put away sin. He appears for us in God's presence now. He will appear to save those who are waiting for him. He has dealt with our sin. He always lives in the presence of God now to intercede for us. He will come again 
to give the full enjoyment of our eternal salvation for all eternity. And so there's this already and not yet going on in the book of Hebrews and in the new covenant. In the new covenant, there are promises that have already been fulfilled. And there are new covenant promises that have not yet been fulfilled. They're awaiting fulfillment. Salvation is inaugurated, is not yet consummated. There's more to come, brothers and sisters. Notice also that the author reminds us of that which is inescapable. All of us, he says, die. We will die. We have an appointment with death, he says. It is marked on the calendar that keeps the days of your life. You didn't write it there. God wrote it there. You can't change it. God settled it. It's an appointment every one of us is going to keep. An appointment with death. And after that, what happens to a believer? What happens? Are you disintegrated into nothing? As some would say, do you simply cease to exist? No, that's not what he says. Are you absorbed into some great cosmic sea, like a drop of water returning to the ocean? Does your existence get dissolved into some cosmic existence of uniformity without the remaining of your personality and individuality so that you are no longer you? No, he says. No. Or do you evolve into some higher reincarnated version of yourself? But only marginally, never finally, perfectly, always risking devolving. No. Do you devolve into some reincarnated lower version of yourself? Something worse, something less than human. Unless you improve your performance. The next go around, turn the ship around and get headed in the right direction. No, he says. First comes death, he says. And after that, what? The judgment, he says. Whose judgment? Your judgment. You still exist. You appear before God. You will stand before God. Your whole life will be accounted for. Every idle word you have ever spoken. Every action you have ever taken. Every good thing you didn't do, every twisted desire will be exposed for what it is. Every imagination of the thoughts of your heart will be laid bare before God who knows it all. Imagine your entire life, including your thought life, on a video camcorder, iPhone with a battery that never quits. And it is all replayed in the presence of God. He doesn't miss anything. It is a terrifying thing to think of judgment. And the Bible is saying here, either you will receive what is due to you for your sins, Which is what? It's God's wrath, it's God's curse, it's God's judgment, it's everlasting punishment. Or your Savior will have received what is due to you for your sins. Either you get what you deserve, or Jesus in substitution 
gets what you deserve and frees you. You will not get a second chance before God when your life is over. He will not send you back for a do-over so that you can accept this Savior in some next life. If you have long rejected him in this life, you do not have that hope. Those who refuse Christ in this life will perish. Jesus is clear about this. In John chapter 3, where we delight in verse 16, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Just two verses later, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So today is the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart against the Savior who opens his arms to you. He died to satisfy the justice of God. That justice is satisfied. He died to pay your debt. Your debts are paid if you are in him, sheltered in him, belong to him. Either stand before God and give account of yourself or let Christ stand before God as your Savior. And his death then gives us peace in death while simultaneously it does not give us peace with death. We can have peace in death. The writer isn't trying to scare believers here. He's trying to encourage you. We can have peace in death. When Jonathan Edwards, uh, if you know the famous philosopher and theologian, pastor, preacher, when he was 54, he received a vaccination for smallpox when that treatment was in its early days and undoubtedly he thought that was a good and wise precaution to receive that, but he actually contracted the deadly disease and on his deathbed he spoke to his younger daughter who was with him. Uh, he says he didn't question the sovereign will of God. Here's what he said, Dear Lucy, it seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope that she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. And he went on to commend his children, quote, to seek a father who will never fail you. Heavenly Father. And then, when those at his bedside believed he was unconscious and expressed grief at what his absence would mean, they were surprised when he suddenly uttered a final sentence, Trust in God and you need not fear. For her part, when the news reached Edward's wife, Sarah, she was suffering so much from rheumatism in her neck that she could scarcely hold a pen. But she wrote to her daughter, Esther, who had lost her own husband, Aaron Burr, just months before, saying this, What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud, 
Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness. That we had him, her husband Jonathan, so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God. And there I am and love to be. We get at peace in death. And say with the scriptures, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. But that does not mean we have peace with death. It is death and its persistence and the sting of death, which is sin, and its persistence. It is that which causes us to look with eagerness beyond death to the return of this Savior. To be eager for his second coming when he will save those who wait for him. There are three tenses to our salvation. We are saved in the past, the moment we trust in Christ. We are being saved in the presence, transformed after his image. And we will be saved, which is his point here. For when we... When he appears, we will see him as he is. And we will be as he is. But here and now, in this world, we are in a war. We are in a war where death seems to win, but Jesus has overcome death. And where sin continues to wage war within us, so that we are frustrated, despairing, angry, mad. We lose heart. We have a genuine longing to see the end of sin and the end of death, both within us and around us. And this is the reason why when Jesus returns, he will return to people who are eagerly waiting for him. We are eagerly waiting because we are weary of remaining sin within And we are sick and tired of being sick and tired of the brokenness of this world. And we are eagerly waiting for him because we know that it is then and only then that the secure and all-sufficient work of Christ will be finally and fully applied and experienced by all of his people. And so our hope is this, as Revelation says, he who sits on the throne will shelter us with his presence. We shall hunger no more, thirst no more, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from our eyes. This is the confidence in which we live. Christ will appear to make all things well. Let's be looking for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son that you spared him not. And thank you uh, for the rule and reign of your son that he always intercedes for us. And thank you for the coming return of your son to usher in glory forever. Count us, we pray, among those who trust in him for that day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing his praise.